Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hey, Mike. So here's an interesting topic that we've both been thinking about. And, you know, we in a previous um, uh, episode of The Crux, we talked uh, about Ray Dalio, you know, the great sort of investor and his his five point plan um, for getting America on the right track. And it was very prescriptive in many ways. Right. It was, um, you know, we need better leaders. Um more bipartisanship um, and it all adds up to you know getting people to do leaders to do what you want them to do mm-hmm. so it's a very sort of five-point plan prescriptive but you've just been in Europe at a, a conference that takes a little bit of a different approach and it's it's around the centers around the idea of nudge theory which I think is fascinating Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us about the conference and, and and what it's all about? Yeah, well, it's interesting in the context, too, of, of Dalio, just because, you know, it, not only being prescriptive, it, it, it's when you really get into it, it's a little bit top down. It's a little bit. Yeah. You should do this. It's uh, it's accountability. It's statistics. And those aren't bad things, but it's a different approach than what I began to hear uh, a lot of speakers uh, when I had the opportunity um, uh, not too long ago to attend what was called Nudge Stock 2019. Now, this is kind of the uh, seventh meeting. They have been doing this annually. And it's, uh, you know, the whole idea of nudge theory started with uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Richard Thaler, who uh, uh, popularized this while uh, the U- University of Chicago professor. And uh, the concept is this. It, it's basically in behavioral science, political theory, and economics to look at what could we do in creating positive reinforcement and indirect suggestions to try to achieve non-forced compliance in order that people are operating with the right motives, incentives, and that decision-making is, uh, is more effective as a consequence right. uh, than the direct instruction, legislation, and enforcement that traditionally we've seen in government and business. And, right. and it's kind of fascinating you know, you could take like uh, even a, a a circumstance like we saw in the news not too long ago. Uh, there's this pop star, Siza. Uh, 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 Your favorite, right? Well, right. I don't know about my favorite, but but she's a lot of people's favorite. <laughs> she's a great voice. Uh, but essentially, you know, uh, she went into a Sephora store. Um, uh, an individual at that store trying to help her out uh, started to think of her in, you know, how she looks and 
what her background is and whatnot, and made some seriously wrong assumptions uh, that prompted a little bit of a, uh, a chatter wall on the Internet uh, around you know, how she had been mistreated inside this store. Thankfully, Sephora responded uh, very quickly. In fact, it's almost like the Starbucks tale, but it happened within 24 hours as opposed to taking weeks and taking a day off. But all Sephora stores uh, within the next 24 hours took an hour to talk about diversity and inclusion and to talk about unconscious uh, bias behavior. And the only reason I cite that is because one of the speakers that I heard at Nudge Talk uh, was a professor at the University of Colorado. and Her name is Stephanie Johnson. And she was fabulous in the sense that she, she is in the process now of educating business leaders around what's happening with unconscious uh, bias and how that's impacting their business mm-hmm. and what they could do through positive reinforcement uh, to change behaviors inside those businesses. And so, Mike, tell us, tell us, I jump in. Yeah. Unconscious bias. What is it? So, unconscious bias. I mean, it could be as simple as okay. So, take me. I'm Latino, and I, I'm not going to even go to you know what I see as cues that might be perceived as mm-hmm. anti-Latino. Let's take something that everybody knows. Uh, let's take the schools we went to. So if you come upon somebody who went to Siena College or I come upon somebody who went to Georgetown or Amanda, who's helping us here today, runs into somebody from the University of Florida, you know, the chances are we're going to think more positively of that person because we have a shared experience. And similarly, if we don't understand the experience that somebody had, we might think of them a little differently. We might think of them in a little bit more foreign context. Right. And we might right. not embrace them in the same way. That happens in innumerable ways. I mean, one of the experiments that uh, Professor Johnson uh, walked through is, you know, suppose there's a rock star and the rock star walks into an event and complains about the amount of liquor at this event. Okay? So you've got that okay. picture in your head. Yeah. And, you, you, yeah. and, and so what do you think the rock star is complaining about? Complaining about... Um... You know, probably not the, the right liquor or not enough liquor. Right, exactly. Okay, now yeah. let me change the story. Nun comes to the same event, and she complains about the liquor at the event. Now what do you right. think? Uh, too much of it. Right, right. Right. Or maybe there shouldn't be any. Right, right. Yeah, why do you have it at all? Yeah, but we make those subtle judgments, you know, just like that. And, right. and, and the same thing happens, you know, if you're an African-American and you're listening to country music or you like ice hockey, um, somehow that seems foreign to some individuals. Or if I'm Latino and what I really like is Chinese food, somehow that's foreign to people. Right. Or it's even foreign to people who don't <laughs> understand different Latin cultures that maybe if you're from Cuba, your family's from Cuba or Puerto Rico, that you don't like hot food. 
because right. your food tends to be more garlic oriented um, and, and spiced differently. Uh, all of that said, uh, the whole you know issue here is that we all have biases. And yeah. we all play them out differently. And yet as businesses and as organizations, we need for everybody to feel welcome. We need for everybody right. to lend their voice to making our organizations better. And so that's what Professor Johnson is all about. Now, you can also look at this, you know, in a business context, too. There were speakers there from Spotify. There were speakers there uh, from Uber. Uh, and it's kind of interesting now, you know, so Uber actually has a woman who's a Ph.D. psychologist from Stanford, um, who's in charge of a team that's called Applied Behavioral Sciences. Now, you would have never have thought a role like that existing in a large company before. Right, right. yeah. And, and then you look at Spotify. And, you know, a lot of what they're doing from a communication standpoint is being informed by their chief economist and somebody he's working with at the University of Chicago, where they're doing real time online surveys and tracking consumer behavior, uh, not to necessarily tease out more information that they can sell, i.e. Facebook, but to provide an even richer experience, you know, to yeah. the consumer. So that, to me, is super fascinating in terms of what does that mean for the future of what you and I do? Well, so, so Mike, so, so what's the takeaway here? Is this, you know, Harold Burson always talks about the primary job of a communicator, someone in PR, to be persuasive. Right. So, is, so what we're talking about here is obviously more knowledge of behavioral science. Yes. How people think how they react to others, how they make up their mind. What Absolutely. was your takeaway? What's, what's your takeaway from being in at this, uh, at this conference at, what do they call it? Nudge stock? Was, N- it, was there stock. a mosh pit, by the way? Were you like naked in a mosh pit or something? No, although, or? although it was funny. They, they, <laughs> it, it was held in this little fishing village uh, <laughs> they called Folkestone. And uh, so the conference started off as everybody's getting to their seats. And there were over like 500 people at this event. Oh, wow. And uh, but as people are, are, are filing in uh, to their seats, they have folk music, uh, live band <laughs> playing. And they're playing they're, they're playing English and Irish and American folk music. It was, it was quite lovely, actually. Oh, great. Great. Uh, sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but but no, I think what's interesting is, you know, to your point, I mean, I can remember sitting and listening to Harold giving a speech, Harold Burson giving a speech back in the uh-huh. 1980s, where he said it's not communications if it doesn't change a perception, a behavior, right. or a business result. And this gets back to sort of a thought that uh, you and I, I know, um, believe in a lot, that a lot of what we do as, as communicators is solve problems. And, right. and, and we're trying really to look at how do we make organizations more successful. This is taking a different lens on that, um, mm-hmm. but with the same intent. And, and, yeah. I, and I think it actually can make communications even that much more powerful. And it also makes communications larger. In some ways, um, I think that not calling what we do public relations is kind of 
uh, a lost art and sad because I think right. I think public relations speaks more to what we do than I think communications is actually a subset. Uh, that ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to relate to publics so That's that right. you'll get the right action to take. And what I kind of like what I hear uh, these nudgers saying is that, you know, <laughs> what they want to do is they want to prompt the right behaviors. Uh, yeah. One of the more interesting, um, and it was a very short presentation, but it really made an impression on me. There was this... Uh, fairly young guy by the name of uh, uh, Mats Matheson. He's Norwegian. And he created an app, and the app is called Hold. And the idea, oh, right. the idea was that too many young people are sort of slaves to their mobile device, slaves to their phone. And could you prompt people to give up some of the time they're using on their phone? So he came up with an app that tracks what you're doing on your phone uh, from a time sequence. So what he does is that app then has advertisers that will give you rewards for not using your phone. So <laughs> you can earn rewards that give you, you know, discounts and free movie tickets and uh, reduced so price good. coffee and so on. And today, so this, this started up like three or four years ago, 40% of Norwegian college students now have this app. That's fantastic. I, I just love this topic. By the way, it's not not just young people. I think all of us in public relations oh, I probably know. are. Yeah, I, it's like if you meet with a client and you send them a note, and it's like every 20 minutes, have they responded? Yeah, you, yeah. you know inherently. <laughs> you know inherently they have other things to do. They have other That's things right. they're working on. <laughs> But it's almost like the kid on you wants that instant gratification. Oh, totally, totally. And look, I love this topic. I'm so glad that uh, to hear your experiences. Uh, I, the behavioral, the study of behavioral science, for me, was probably the biggest eye opener that I've had in the past four or five years on how people um, not only uh, live their lives but make up their mind. And a lot of the things that I was doing traditionally in public relations, you know, myths versus facts, um, all of these things, you know, punching people over the head uh, with, you're, you know, you're wrong, I'm right, all of these kinds of things was exactly the wrong thing to be doing. And I've done a lot of reading on it over the past few years. And in fact, I think I'll, as we get back, particularly my crisis course this fall at Boston University, spending an, an entire week on this idea of the science of persuasiveness yeah I think is so is so important to what we do not to be um, you know to a salesman or but to be genuinely engaged with people to understand them understand what's important and how they make up their minds about things and what can be persuasive to them I think is just fascinating. Yeah, you know, and what was interesting too, while I actually went there with the idea of wanting to hear more about specific applications like Hold, like Spotify, yeah. like Uber yeah. is doing, um, what was also fascinating is how do you apply this to larger issues, right? Totally. Uh, apply it to the environment and climate change so that people will take up the right behaviors that solve the problem. You know, to, yeah, to apply it against like what Professor Johnson is doing with diversity and inclusion or apply it to public policy in general. 
Yeah, now, and you and I have talked about this before, which is particularly science to me. How do you apply it to science? Whereas we're seeing a lot of big companies who um, are unable to explain persuasively science to juries and to the public, uh, where it would appear the science is on their side, but they can't convince people of that simply by having an expert stand up and, and testify to it. So um, uh, I, I think anyone who works in media relations, public relations, crisis management, this is a good place. And by the way, as, as we've been talking here, I did see that CISA, who pronounces her, or, or spells her name S-Z-A, right. um, her, her biggest album was CISA Run. So I'm going to, after talking <laughs> to you about her, I'm going to go out and get it. It's... Uh, We'll have, to, like we'll have to see if we can get rights to play a little bit of that music as, as, as the lead exactly. in Exactly. <laughs> so, really great topic. Now, you're going to do an interview, Mike. Yes. Um, to further this a little bit from uh, on this topic, but uh, really great discussion. And, and uh, I think it's something we, we should follow up again in a future podcast on this uh, idea of the science of persuasion, behavioral science. We're thrilled to have with us on the Crux, the co-founder and chief research officer for Morning Consult, uh, Kyle Drop. Uh, Kyle and his colleagues are known for taking a fresh new approach to 21st century survey research. And they are the research firm behind this new uh, Institute for Public Relations uh, report titled Disinformation in Society. Uh, Kyle, welcome to the Crux. Thank you for having me, Mike. Uh, so, disinformation in society, how did the report come about and what makes it different from maybe some of the other reports we've seen about fake news and trust and the like? Yeah. So, well, we have a longstanding partnership and friendship with, you know, the Institute for Public Relations and with Tina McCorkendale in particular. And we're always looking for ways to work on thought leadership studies of this sort, whether it's with the Public Affairs Council on their pulse surveys or, or with other groups of that nature. So when Tina came to us with, with an idea along this nature, we thought, well, this, this is a great uh, partnership opportunity. There are a few ways in which it's, it's different, and it's consistent with a lot of the work that we do at, at Morning Console. First, we always want to talk to a lot of people. So we talked to more than 2,000 Americans on, on this study just over the course of a couple of days. And we also want to uh, deeply dive into a given uh, subject and so we can answer questions like the not just the what's, but but the why's. So as you can see in this mm -hmm. report, we're we're answering questions like who people think are responsible for for disinformation in society, how large of a problem disinformation is compared with with others, and and you name it, uh, other things that I'm sure that we will discuss over the course of the next few minutes. Yeah. So so who do people think is 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 the most to blame or the most responsible for disinformation, and then whom do they trust most not to traffic in it? Sure. So the sources that were viewed as most responsible for for working on uh, sort of disinformation were were fake social media accounts, uh, politicians, and 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 President Trump in particular were the ones who who people thought were were most responsible for the disinformation. By contrast, people tended to trust information from local sources such as local broadcasts, along with friends uh, and family members in particular. 
So I think the closer that somebody is to a source, the more that they trust that source uh, for information. Any sense of, you know, we used to, in the public relations business, look at, you know, who are trusted parties, who are experts. Was there any sense that they they place any value in expertise, or is it just proximity? Well, proximity is, is number one. We've seen time and time again in studies that we've done on news media credibility or media credibility in general that the large national nonpartisan, uh, putatively impartial sources do mm-hmm. tend to be trusted more than others. So that this would include, you know, the, the PBSs of the world, the ABCs, CBSs, um, and, and NBCs. And then in general, a tear down would include uh, some of the national cable stations. And then, you know, often a, a tear down would include some of the, the large social media companies and organizations associated with it. So, you know, they're, they're, there's myriad sources for people to get their information, but the national ones are, are still viewed um, uh, at least relatively credibly. Mm-hmm. And when you get to social media, are there some that are more uh, mistrusted or people believe are, are, are more trafficking and disinformation than others? It, it varies in how you ask the question and, mm-hmm. and who you're talking to. One thing that, that has often uh, surprised me in, in a lot of our work is brand ID for the, the social media companies varies uh, dramatically. For example, huh. I think only about 70% of Americans are sort of familiar with, with Twitter and, and what it does, and, and far fewer have, have accounts. By contrast, almost every journalist who is writing about uh, Twitter has a Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- th- there could be a, you know, a disconnect uh, there, whereas you know, Facebook is, is universal, whether it's, you know, the percent of individuals who are, are using Facebook or one of its properties, such as uh, Instagram uh, or, or WhatsApp, and, you know, its name ID is mm-hmm. you know, you're 99 to, to 100 percent overall. Yeah. So based on findings, what kind of advice might you give to organizations or companies on how to communicate in kind of this new world of mistrust and disinformation? Sure. I'd first say that the most fascinating thing that I, I found in a study or the most surprising thing was that fake news was seen as as big of an issue as gun violence uh, or as terrorism. Wow. So, you know, it, you know, it, it, it just it, it really spikes and it, it, you know, it's something that people are thinking about almost every day. And it's, as, as you know, those, those other issues are, are big, serious issues. I'd say like a lot of our work, it's, it's, you've got to rely on, on data and information companies and organizations can be you know, more agile when they, they use information right to the extent that you're communicating things. Uh, the, the person that you mention as the distribution channel matters. So if you make a connection with your consumers that you know, people trust their family, people like them, you know, their local newspapers, their local broadcast news, whereas things that seem distal or far away um, you know, tend to be trusted a bit less. Yeah. yeah. Let me change gears a bit and uh, not to terribly put you on the spot, but, you know, when we think about uh, reputation and we think about uh, uh, mistrust, disinformation, I mean, the polling and marketing research world has had its own reputation challenge kind of coming out of the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And in fact, a lot of the the pundits at the time uh, thought pollsters had called the election all wrong. And you and I, uh, I, I think, have 
have, have opinions on that in terms of the fact that, you, you know, uh, most of the trends in most of the polls seem to show that, you know, Clinton was losing ground and Trump was gaining ground. All of that said, given that there was less noise in kind of the midterm elections in 2018, uh, did, from your sense, did, did pollsters learn anything from what had happened in 2016? And uh, what are we likely to see next year? You know, in 2020, will we be more like 2018 or more like 2016? Sure. Let me add a little context here. I, I had a mentor once who, who told me that, that polling 50 years ago was quite easy. He got a list <laughs> of numbers and every, every, everybody picked up their phone. And it's probably one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of individuals, individuals who perhaps weren't even the most statistically inclined went into polling. Uh, everybody picked up your phone and society was you know, less diverse. And, and as you know, that, that is not the case anymore. Uh, yeah. nobody, nobody picks up their phone, especially their, their cell phone. You need to make some couple hundred calls to reach some of the, the hardest to reach audiences. And then, you know, as we know, on, you know, online is emerging and it is, it is the standard now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's, there's still multiple, multiple sources that, that people are going to. And time and time again at, at Morning Console, we've, we've learned that the way the news cycle changes and affects the, the race is faster than ever. And so our solution is, is often to pull very quickly and at unmatched scale. And, yeah. and that, that is the reason to identify whether, whether events affect um, support for uh, various issues or uh, impact support for, you know, for, for various candidates. You know, for example, we're, we're currently talking to about 15,000 Democratic primary voters wow. every week. Wow. Um, so, so that's very different. Nationally, every week. Yeah, because that's very different. I mean, when I was in politics, I remember that, and, and up until fairly recently, if somebody was going to go do a national survey, you're looking at a survey, you know, somewhere between 800 and 1,600 respondents. So, you know, as you take these mammoth sample sizes, what does that allow you to do differently for your clients or, or in terms of, uh, you know, looking at a, a political race? Sure. You learn a lot. And now that regardless of whether you're doing large scale polls to track issues or support for candidates or the popularity of thousands of, of companies or brands like, you know, like we're doing around the, the world each day, you know, a, a few things come to mind. For example, in the context of the the 2020 uh, presidential race, we found that that most candidates who announce get immediate six to seven point bump uh, mm-hmm. over the course of the three to four days after. You know, mm-hmm. we saw this for Buttigieg, we saw this for Kamala Harris, we saw this for Joe Biden, we saw this for uh, Bernie Sanders, we we saw this for some others, and then they sort of recede over time. Now these um, short term. Now, uh, by the way. Isn't that that's a little bit of the same phenomena we used to see in polling where candidates would purposely place something in the news and then survey with the idea of pushing their numbers in the near term. Is is that right? Yeah, I I would say that undoubtedly people, these these candidates are are getting attention for their announcements. And so you see these short term spikes in support and whether they're maintained or not, you know, is is an important question. You know, we're, we're currently seeing nationally. Uh, Biden has roughly 40 percent support among Democratic uh, registered voters. And that's been roughly consistent for the last month. So he he got a 10 point bump after announcing in in late April. And and sort of he's there Uh, more more generally, 
you know, you need to be quick and quick and large scale uh, to, to pick up some of these changes as you know as the, the news cycle um, shifts each each day. I'd say more generally what what we should be looking for in the, in the next few months. Uh, what we should look forward to to a few things. First, people are not that invested in the race yet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, of of course, there's there's lots of ink uh, spilled and and lots of people uh, talking about it. But many of the Democratic candidates are not universally well known yet. Mm-hmm. Only three of them have name IDs over ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Warren and and Sanders and and Biden and many are are you know quite lower so it'll be exciting to see with debates and and additional straw polls and yeah we and all remember President Jeb weather. Bush right we all remember uh, President uh, Jeb Bush but you know an example is we we've done roughly let's say a million interviews on a name ID of these candidates since the start of the year mm-hmm. and most of the name IDs for the twenty plus candidates have sort of topped out. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't changed much in the last month, so it's difficult for these candidates to get attention uh, and and to to frankly break through. That's something that we'll be we'll be tracking, of course, each um, mm-hmm. each day. Well, and it'll be interesting with debates. It'll be interesting as different things happen in the news and how people react to these candidates based on how they react to a given situation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that that is intriguing to me, and, and mainly it's because I've been in the role of working in communications or working in marketing for a large company or consulting large companies and organizations through agencies. And there's just a plethora of data that is out there. And sometimes it, it, it almost makes your head spin. It's as though, uh, you know, CMOs, CCOs, uh, other C-suite executives are kind of drowning in a sea of data. How do you make it easier for them to consume, understand, and use the data uh, so that they use it effectively? We'll be a successful company if we can help executives, kind of broadly defined, make sort of smart decisions based on unintuitive, actionable information. Mm-hmm. A lot of that pertains to politics. A lot of that um, pertains to brand. Historically, I think polling and and pollsters have sort of come out of an you know kind of an ivory tower, more elite mindset in the sense that you know. They'll have a poll every once in a while. It comes out infrequently. It costs a lot. You get a big, heavy binder with the results. By the time the poll is done, the news cycle has changed, or you know, you're you're on to the next issue as a as a company. So I think the the core of what we've done, as I've mentioned, kind of at the beginning, is you know, an event happens, and we're we're just in the field within a couple hours, trying to get a sense of of you know whether kind of people's minds have changed or or not on it. I, I'd say we at the high level do two things, whether it's in politics or brand. One, we're sort of tracking each day what perceptions are toward key companies, key issues, you know, you name it, out there. And that, I think, helps to establish the, the what. Are you up? Are you down? Are you popular? Are you not? But then whenever news breaks or when things happen, we, we go with kind of pincer-like studies to help identify the why. Like, uh, for example, Starbucks last April when there were multiple arrests in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. we were tracking, do people have a favorable or unfair view for them? They, they dropped five points overall, 15 points among African-Americans. But that day, we went into the field with a special survey of 2,000 Americans and asked who people blamed for the arrest. And sure enough, they, 
they they blamed the manager, not the company. Seventy mm-hmm. percent supported the CEO's apology and efforts to you know to to address uh, the issue. So it's like a yes, you want to understand kind of at a high level whether events or initiatives or news cycles have some bearing on your reputation or support. But like that doesn't answer in all cases the why. So I think you right. pair together kind of this context setting with the actual. Um, pincer-like surveys to to get at. Right. In fact, you guys did an interesting survey going uh, back to when Dr. Dow was taken off of the United Airlines plane. And I remember being struck by the fact, and it it makes a lot of sense to those of us who've had economics uh, courses, but that uh, United Airlines did not sustain a lot of... um, damage from that. I mean, one could argue that a lot of us still remember the case happening, but from an economic standpoint, uh, they they were not deterred. And in part, it really went to the context of the airline industry operating out of a hub and spoke, and we don't have lots of choices. And so who, no matter what the airline is, while people might tell us they they would prefer not to do business with United Airlines. They fundamentally end up, if they want to go from point A to point B, end up using uh, United Airlines. Yeah, that's exactly what we found. You know, in the, in the absence of data and information, the uh, the loudest voice in the room uh, wins. Mm-hmm. So when um, some of the events that that you're mentioning with United happened, we were in the field and interviewing probably five thousand people each day to see kind of high level what people were hearing mm-hmm. um a national representative sample whether trust in the company had changed and and of course it it had had declined then to your point though purchase consideration had not changed dramatically uh you know for the airline compared with with others and there are a few principal reasons for that one not all americans fly right only about 40 percent uh, do so and then you know second uh you know people fly with with airlines that are concentrated in their areas and so, some airlines have hubs in specific cities. Like, you know, it's more challenging to fly JetBlue if you're in, you know, on the, on, on the West Coast. You know, they've, they've got, a, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, highly popular on the East Coast in the, the Miami and the New York and the Boston networks in which they fly. So, you know, that's the, the hope there. I think you provide people with information, even if the information is consistent or inconsistent with what your prior views are, you, you have that information and then you're able to, uh, I think with more confidence, make a decision. Yeah. And I also know that one of the big things that people are trying to wrap their head around and they're using different approaches to get there is this notion of kind of anticipating what's the next best move. I mean, in fact, the LLYC, the former Urente Cuenca that I've been associated with, the strategic communications firm, they actually literally have as their tagline, anticipate. And And in fact, I met with a CEO... Uh, actually, uh, just last week, and he talked about his fascination as a younger person around these great, you know, chess grandmasters, and that what makes them really good is that ability to think and see multiple moves ahead. And I wonder, you know, as as you think about what Morning Consult does and uh, the type of work you're getting into, how do you kind of help? Uh, your clients see around the corners, if you will, and how far away are we from seeing what you do is, is, is being more predictive than just, 
you know, a, a, a moment in time, this is what people think. Sure. Well, Yogi Berra has that famous line <laughs> along the lines of, you know, it's tough to make predict- predictions, especially about the future. Yeah. Uh, some of what we offer is context. Yeah. So uh, on the, the brands and the issue side, every day we're, we're tracking what people think of 3,700 brands in, in 12 countries. So you never need to look at a number in isolation. You never need to say, oh, this is a 16 or a 62 or a 12.1. You mm-hmm. say, look, we're, we're at this. Here's where our peers are at. Or we're at this. Here's where, where, we, where we were at a month ago. And, and I think all of that information is what executives are looking for. So context is quite important. You can, you can say, look, we shifted five points in the past month. How many other companies had uh, five-point shifts? Yeah. Or we changed 10 points year on year? How many other companies had that? Just like in a stock market, you might have mm-hmm. a 52-week uh, high to low. Or, you know, event happened, and we'll ask a representative sample. You know, did you hear a lot, some, not much, or nothing about that? Well, we have that not just for a given event, like, say, the NBA playoffs or, tra- you know, trade issues with China, but mm-hmm. thousands of others. So you can always sort of place it in, in context. And I, I think that's critically important, especially for individuals or executives who are making decisions and trying to understand if their unique um, event is, in fact, unique. Ninety-some percent of the time, news happens, and people's minds don't change about an issue. And it's, so it's helpful to, you know, it's helpful to hear that and to know that and to have information. I guess the, the final point that I would make is we know a lot about people. We know that if yeah. somebody takes a certain position uh, about an insurance company, for example, we know that they may have a similar view of another insurance company. Mm-hmm. We know if we know somebody's party or age uh, or race or education, we can say a lot of, about that individual without them even telling us. So uh, a lot of what we'll be rolling out uh, in the future is more profile type analysis where mm-hmm. we don't even need to frankly ask people questions. Mm-hmm. We already at some level can uh, predict or anticipate mm-hmm. with a high degree of confidence what their answer will be. Uh, and you know that, that that's probably another, that's, quite that's probably another advantage out of the large sample sizes that you're able to run online. Yeah, and 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 as we know, um, in in many cases, p- people's kind of true thoughts are not always at at the surface. Right. Um, or in many cases, it can be quite difficult to ascertain uh, what somebody really thinks, mm-hmm. either because it's tough to write the question in a way that 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 gets that way, or Mm-hmm. write a confusing question or people have a lot on you know on their mind so you mm-hmm. know we're we're really trying to you know to do something different there and you know, mm-hmm. in terms of technology and, and advance of the future we do think that the kind of online and anonymous environment uh that is presented there affords a lot of advantages people can can really discreetly provide their opinions on on issues that they might not otherwise feel comfortable uh let's say yeah. providing on a, a podcast that went out to thousands of individuals yeah, you know that's in, that's very intriguing to me in terms of you know what's right below the surface, and I know that a uh, lot of companies are, are seemingly challenged. You know, retail markets are changing. How people buy things online is changing, uh, and uh, the need for uh, companies seemingly, or the desire of companies to generate and develop uh, a narrative for themselves is becoming um, important and kind of purpose has been the watchword in that space. Unilever, you know, was known for uh, under Paul Pullman uh, and his CMO, uh, Keith Weed, for uh, uh, 
creating a focus for the company brand around sustainable living. And then they also had certain brands that they would call brands with purpose, like Dove and Ben and & Jerry's. Um, and then on the other side, we have all of these companies being sort of uh, forced to or feeling forced to take a, a, a stance or or take a position on a public policy issue like gun control or pay equity, you know, how do you help clients on one hand define their narrative and then help them discern, you know, what if any public policy issues should they really engage in or take a stand on? Well, absolutely. Uh, and and we've seen, whether it's with Unilever and and their new CEO, Alan Jolp, who's been talking about brands needing a purpose, or uh, BlackRock's uh, CEO, Larry Fink, writing a letter to, um, you know, to, to all CEOs talking about companies needing to establish purpose and you know, to have you know, sort of defined ESG targets. That this is an issue that is growing in importance, and it, you know, I think it's critical to, to the future of a lot of companies. I'd first say that every company and brand is different. Each company has a diverse and unique set of stakeholders that will affect their decision uh, making on on this subject. Uh, you know, as you've written in the past, communicators may have been focused in the early days on more internal stakeholders like employees mm-hmm. um, or, you know, or perhaps some customers. And now there's a vast array of both internal and external stakeholders, whether it's shareholders or social media influencers or journalists or athletes or you name it, that um, heads of communications and, and marketing need to um, consider when they're when they're making decisions on uh, on, on some of these purpose-driven uh, topics. To be more direct, uh, you know, we've asked uh, Americans in all sorts of samples uh, how they would react to companies taking positions on hundreds of different issues, whether it uh, is on gun research or sustainability, uh, LGBTQ, um, outsourcing of jobs, immigration, you name it. Um, and, and so I think in many ways we're proactively trying to help companies or organizations understand what the potential impact of, uh, of positions might be, um, given that many companies are in regulated uh, sectors and that it, they probably have a responsibility to have an understanding of what the impact of various actions might be uh, on their reputation and, uh, and, and potential sales. So I think we've been helping uh, companies understand proactively what might happen if if they take stances, how they should be communicating such stances to to link sort of their mission to the actual action that uh, that they are uh, taking, and you know, we've seen this with you know, with with Nike and um, you know in their their uh, Colin Kaepernick campaign mm-hmm. last fall. You know, you see this with a series of actions uh, on, on gender and uh, LGBTQ from Procter and Gamble. Thinking about their leadership on the uh, on you know on, on the brand of Gillette just in the last few months, so you know lots of companies are uh, are of course responding and, and and you know in 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 myriad ways on, on this issue. And our, our hope is is before an announcement we we can provide information there, but then also after an announcement we can uh, we can help to evaluate uh, how different uh, stakeholders are are responding. You know mm-hmm. and. and and, and it varies. For example, um, I just saw Dick's Sporting Goods CEO speak this morning, and he said that uh, they've had uh, more than 100 stores where they're, they're no longer selling guns. And he said that 
some people loved them for making that decision, and he said that that love in some ways has receded. Uh, he said some people hated them for making the decision, and they still hate them. And so, you know, <laughs> some co- companies, uh, you know, may may face financial costs for taking issues that they view and that they think are are you know moving a society forward or you know are are moving things with purpose. I think other companies have taken positions that are, I think, totally in line with with I think growing the organization and uh, sort of leading to a a better society, but there's, you know, that whether it's uh, ESG or or any of these issues, these will these will continue to be um, uh, quite important. I think the biggest differences we're seeing are the extent to which companies in heavily regulated industries, yeah, uh, and it, industries that are somewhere in between, and then less lightly regulated industries are are taking positions on on this issue. Um, and the final point I'll say is that when you talk to board members, they they will say something along the lines of. The farther away you get away from your core area of competence or expertise, the more careful you should be. Um, and there is undoubtedly some truth to that. Yeah. But data can inform your decision to do something or not to do something uh, as well in a way that is that is that um, that I think can allow you to make a bigger impact on the world. Yeah, talking about making an impact on the world, I, I attended a, a conference uh, in, earlier this month. Uh, in uh, the UK and sponsored by Ogilvy uh, and, and its behavioral sciences unit. It was all around nudge theory. You know, this is the theory where Richard Thaler, the economist, won the Nobel Prize coming out of the University of Chicago. Uh, but the thought pattern is that we can prompt uh, the right behaviors and prompt people to do the right thing if we make that possible, either through uh, communications or through how we organize a given situation. Some of the classic cases are, you know, by the uh, cashier at a store in a train station. If all there is is candy, we're more likely to buy candy. But if all of a sudden there's fresh fruit, we're more likely to buy fresh fruit. Uh, there's an interesting uh, new app. I say new. I think it's been out there for like two or three years. Uh, but in Norway, there was this young man who was uh, interested in the fact that too many young people were like slaves to their phone. And so he came up with an app that gives them rewards um, for not using their phone. So they can get free coffee, they can get discount tickets for movies if they don't use their phones. So it's that kind of thing. But I, I was wondering, to what extent is uh, Morning Consult helping clients who are engaged in this kind of effort? I'll make two points. One, uh, framing, or how you describe an issue, can have immense impact on uh, the level of support for a, uh, a given issue. You, you have seen this probably in the public relations field uh, in in various ways. Uh, for example, we did a study with the, the New York Times, and if you describe um, the, the law passed in 2010 on health care, if you describe that as the Affordable Care Act uh, yeah. versus Obamacare, mm-hmm. you're going to get uh, different uh, reactions. For example, if you describe it as the Affordable Care Act, as we've seen on TV, you know, walk up to the average person on the street, say, well, do you like the Affordable Care Act? You're going to get about eight percentage point higher level of support um, for mm-hmm. it than if you describe it as um, Obamacare. So very, you know, very slight descriptions or shifts in, in how yeah. you describe something can have a, a big impact. And so uh, for executives out there, you know, the lesson should be something along the lines of wording and word choice matters. Yeah, because you all have triggers, along, right? Yeah. I, uh, I'd, I'd also say along the same line, uh, I had a mentor once tell me that, um, uh, you know, Kyle, you're, 
your running surveys, and you should know that you can get any answer you want to any survey question in the world. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I thought that was a provocative statement. Uh, in some ways, it's true. As a survey uh, researcher, we control the way in which somebody answers a survey question, the responses and the response options that somebody sees, whether they open it, you know, they, they answer it in, a, in an open-ended format, you know, in one word, what did you see today, or whether they, they answer it uh, in a closed format. From the following list of words, what uh, do you see today? And that has an impact, a big impact on the sorts of responses that you have. I, w- I would say when, when, I, when I first started running surveys roughly 10 years ago, uh, there was a big question over uh, President Obama at the time's religion. Mm-hmm. And if, if you ask people, um, do you think President Obama is a Muslim or not, yes or no, something like 30% of people would say yes. Wow. No, on, on the contrary, if you said you know, from the list of the following religions, what uh, is President Obama's religion, you listed, let's say, 10 religions, only about 10% of people would say Muslim. So uh, I think this is relevant for your point about nudging, yeah. because sometimes the default option or the options that you present somebody will uh, sort of preordain your conclusion. Yeah. And so you know, in a world in which people are uh, encounter so many choices mm-hmm. every day, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can slightly move people uh, in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in one, you know, in one direction or another that has a a meaningful impact on, uh, but it also on underscores the fact that if you if you're going to be a a real researcher around this, uh, that you also need to keep in mind that the response that you get from a biased question is not going to necessarily give you the best result either. Um, now, to kind of close out here, and, and we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I know I know you have, have your PhD from Stanford. You taught at Dartmouth. What really got you interested in uh, survey research, and what prompted you and your colleagues to create what we now know today as Morning Consult? Well, I've, I've always been curious uh, what people thought and why they think that way, and whether you can uh, reinforce such attitudes or, you know, or, or change such attitudes. And so I think I, uh, the honest answer is I had just taken a professor job um, at Dartmouth College, and I needed money to run surveys. <laughs> I thought that, that was the way in which I was uh, going to publish a lot of work, and it would lead to at least academic fame and fortune. Uh, and my, my good friend Mike had this, email newsletter that he sent out to thousands of people on healthcare uh, and didn't have a name and he had been doing it for years and he had a you know a loyal audience of all these executives in healthcare across insurance and pharma and government and you name it and he had all these ideas about things he wanted to do to improve it to improve the content to perhaps make money off of it uh, in advertising and you know we decided to bring the two together and so an uh, email newsletter with a survey research capability so we just called it the morning consult. And it came out in the morning, and uh, consult sounded like healthcare. So, <laughs> you know, it was a way for me, uh, selfishly, to to get some free survey interviews, and I think it was a way for him to to get a lot of content. And it, you know, it's it's worked out uh, quite well for for both of us. Uh, and and I think for for the company writ large, we've over the course of roughly five years, we've grown to about 130 uh, employees, and we're continuing to hire. We're, people in four cities that that original health email which is still free and you could receive each each morning has expanded to finance and tech and and energy and and dc and 
even outside of D.C., we now have sports and, and entertainment and brands, and we have a, a real world-class newsroom of 25 to 30 journalists who are, are focusing on, on data-driven journalism and providing objective insights on, on each of these issues that, that people can access uh, for free. Um, but I think at its core, it's, you know, people, just like every, they say every uh, actor um, in any show uh, ever has um, sort of an intention and an obstacle and the tactics to kind of go for it. So my, I think my intention was I needed some surveys. The obstacle was um, uh, not having money. That was a poor <laughs> academic. And then the way that we executed it was to, to find ways to scale um, online research and to hopefully define the future of, of, of research as we know it and to um, continuously work to, to improve what we're doing. And, and as you know, um, you know we're, not, we're now probably interviewing 20, 20 plus thousand people each day, yeah. uh, mostly in the U.S., it's but amazing. also around the world on, on every topic. Every time we open the news, we think, well, if there's an issue mentioned or company mentioned or politician mentioned or, or such, do, you know, do we have data on that? In more cases uh, than not, we, we do. So uh, that's kind of the long-winded answer yeah, to the, yeah. you know, we're, we're trying to be kind of nimble and, and smart and, and quick about what, what we're doing because we know we have, a, we have a big opportunity um, both as the 2020 cycle uh, comes up on us, but then just I think with, with the growth of companies uh, uh, becoming more purpose-driven and then I think with uh, marketers, in the U.S. and internationally, striving, struggling, attempting, working to find additional ways to reach people um, and and to engage audiences. Thank you, Kyle. It's been a great interview and uh, much success to you and Morning Consult. Thank you so much for having me and, uh, and hope you have a great uh, rest of your week. Take care.